Hello, I'm Mary Osborne. I'm Kathy Chagrin. And I'm Stacia Matten. And we'd like to welcome you back for a second season of Prairie Tales, where each month we talk about this wonderful community we live in, Monmouth, Illinois. Mary, did you know that the city of Monmouth is the birthplace of fraternity Kappa Kappa Gamma? Well, yes, I did. Well, did you know that their mascot is an owl and the Florida is their symbol? Yes, I was aware. Did you know that the fraternity began as a desire by several local women in Monmouth to develop a women's fraternity for social development and now has 145 collegiate chapters? How do you know so much about Kappa Kappa Gamma? <laughs> well, well you know, I read it on the I read it internet. On the internet. Oh, moving on. Each month at Prairie Tales, we bring you a little slice of history from Monmouth's past with the help of local historians. Last year, we heard from many of you who listen, and we welcome your ideas for future programs. We also would like to recognize the Buchanan Center for the Art, which sponsors our program as part of its mission to promote the art in whatever form it takes in the Monmouth area. So, are we ready to begin? Absolutely. Well, get ready because it's season two of Prairie Tales. Welcome back to another episode of Prairie Tales. As the summer winds down, we're all trying to sneak in some last minute getaways, but travel in the early 20th century required more preparation, especially if you were going to be gone for three months. In this episode, I'll share the story of William K. Stewart's trip around the world. William was the older brother of Minnie Stewart Field, one of the founders of Kappa Kappa Gamma. The first decade of the 20th century had not exactly been kind to William. No doubt he was still affected by the losses he had suffered in the late 1890s. In 1897, his father, Judge James Stewart, passed away. His sister Minnie died six months later from complications following surgery, and one month later, his only son and youngest child, James, succumbed to injuries after a diving accident. 1902 promised some happiness, though. William married Ada Mariner on March 26th after spending the last 16 years as a widower. The marriage did not thrive, however. For reasons that are still unclear, Ada and William divorced in 1904. The couple held diverging political and religious convictions, which may have led to unavoidable tension. Although Ada would have borne the brunt of the shame associated with the divorce, the local community could have also cast dispersions on William. Not long after his divorce, he retired from his law practice. He had time for himself now and fewer responsibilities. His mother, Isabel, had passed away in January 1904. In 1908, his daughters, Lucretia and Isabel, both married. Now in his 60s, he might not have many more opportunities to travel, and William had the means at a time when financing extended trips was out of the reach of most people, especially in Monmouth. It was becoming more affordable, though, for the middle class to plan leisure trips. Perhaps an advertisement for a cruise caught his eye. Prior to his world tour, he spent several months in South America. This voyage was longer, spanning 110 days. Starting at $650, which included all expenses, the trip covered the Riviera, the Madeira Islands, points of interest in Southeast Asia, and the Hawaiian Islands before docking in San Francisco. At a time when the average salary was $400 per year, the trip was no trivial expense. The voyage would cost approximately $20,000 in today's currency. 
Pleased with his previous tour of South America, William booked his passage aboard the SS Cleveland, which set sail on November 1, 1911, from New York. The SS Cleveland was a German transoceanic liner belonging to the Hamburg America Line. The shipbuilding and engineering company Blom & Voss designed it and its sister ship, the Cincinnati. Founded in 1877, Blom & Voss built a number of passenger ships and ocean liners, including the RMS Majestic, part of the White Star Line, and the Princess Victoria Louise, recognized by historians as the first ship built exclusively for cruising. The Cleveland launched in September 1908. Its length registered at nearly 589 feet. She contained berths for 2,827 passengers, 246 in first class, 332 in second class, 448 in third class, and 1,801 in steerage. Although the Hamburg-America line initially made its money in shipping, it also transported a large number of immigrant passengers. She also boasted nearly 30,000 cubic feet of refrigerated hold space for perishable cargo. With its twin screws powered by two quadruple expansion steam engines, the Cleveland could attain a speed of 16 knots without compromising safety and stability. Scholars have credited Albert Balin for expanding the Hamburg America's focus to include pleasure or leisure cruising. Balin was hired by the company in 1886 and became its director in 1899. He recognized the practicalities in expansion. The company regularly lost money when shipping freight decreased in the winter. Initially, Balin ordered that some of these freighters be repurposed for cruising, but this course of action was far from ideal. A repurposed ship couldn't offer the level of amenities and accommodations tourists expected. Hamburg America's competitors, such as the White Star Line, Cunard, and P&O, were also entering the market. At first, they had been focused on speed to record the fastest Atlantic crossing time. However, around the turn of the 20th century, pleasure cruising increased in popularity. It was a way for people who could not afford to build and maintain their own private yachts to achieve a similar experience. The first pleasure cruiser, the August Victoria, departed Cuxhaven, Germany on January 22, 1891. The hosts were Albert Balin and his wife, Marianne. The ship took 241 passengers into the Mediterranean, and the trip lasted 57 days. Initially, critics were skeptical that Germans would want to travel for fun, but they were mistaken. The Hamburg America's first cruise liner, the Princess Victoria Louise, catered to wealthy tourists. It boasted a large gymnasium, a social hall, a library, a smoking room, an art gallery, spacious promenade decks, a ballroom, a dark room for amateur photographers, and 120 first-class-only staterooms, equipped with brass beds and double-light portholes that were opened when the ship was in warm climates. Launched in 1900, it was comparable to a floating hotel. We might imagine that the Cleveland was similarly well-appointed, and its passenger list was diverse. Newspapers noted some 37 states and territories, including Alaska, and 107 cities are represented in the ship's company. Interestingly, the liner had a tourist bureau and a woman social director. In addition to William, one of the passengers on board was Miss Charlotte Ehrlicher. In fact, she was one of the first women to go to sea as a ship's nurse, according to her obituary. Prior to this voyage, she was the director of nursing at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City and then helped organize the state welfare program in New Jersey. Charlotte served as the Cleveland's nurse and also kept a travel log. Her letters were published in the American Journal of Nursing. 
In her official capacity, Ehrlicher traveled in comfort. Her accommodations included a real bed instead of a cot, a wardrobe, a bookcase, washstand, and an electric fan. One of the Cleveland's first stops was in Monte Carlo. The casinos did not impress William. He related, We saw a great many roulette tables and other gambling games. A large amount of gold and silver was changing hands, and some of our tourists gambled to a limited extent, but most of us were there simply to look on. It looked very foolish to me to see the people throwing away their time and money in that way, and I did not stay there long, but spent most of the time outside. Charlotte also noted the presence of ladies at the gambling tables. She observed, There was one nice, white-haired old lady, cheeks flushed with excitement, with that dull flush that comes only to the old, scooping in five-franc pieces by the dozen. Times had indeed changed. The fact that women were gambling was not such a surprise, but that they did so in public and in mixed company suggested more relaxed codes of behavior, particularly in a city that depended on tourism. William had more favorable comments once the ship arrived in Cairo. He marveled at the university with its 11,000 students and 300 professors, which must have seemed like a far cry from his alma mater. William noted that the lessons involved a great deal of rote memorization and recitation. The students sat on the floor in the Eastern tradition. According to William, they were so thick on the floors that it was difficult to walk among them without stepping on some of them, and the noise was so great that we could hardly hear one of our party speak, and they did not seem to notice our talking. We had to put on slippers over our shoes or take off our shoes and go in our stocking feet before entering the university. Charlotte Ehrlicher found Cairo very cosmopolitan, with ancient structures juxtaposed against modern shops and modern modes of transportation. Besides the university, one of the first visits the passengers made was to the Sphinx and to the pyramids. These destinations were of great interest to William. In fact, he and one of his friends ascended the largest pyramid. He admitted, I succeeded in getting to the top, but found myself alone with my guides. The others gave out on the way up and turned back. I found it a steep, hard, hot climb, but was well repaid by the splendid view on gaining the top 450 feet above the ground. Both Charlotte and William commented on another facet of the tourism industry. Guiding well-to-do and naive Americans and Europeans was lucrative. William explained, There were comparatively few of our 500 tourists trying to go to the top of the pyramid, so those who did had more guides and assistance than was needed, and made the expense in paying them off more. I spent nearly all of my Egyptian money and part of my other money before I got the guides, etc. paid off. Charlotte stated, At the edge of the desert there are donkeys and camels, with boys and men all clamoring to take you to the Sphinx for a shilling. The blending of cultures is fascinating. These were just a few of the examples of transnationalism contained in Charlotte's and William's accounts. What they witnessed was largely driven by economics, but the effects of colonialism ran much deeper. The Cleveland's next stop was India. The party missed the Delhi Durbar by a little over a month. In December, the Durbar, or Mass Assembly, commemorated the coronation of King George V and Queen Mary as Emperor and Empress of India. The 1911 Durbar is exceptional in that it was the only one attended by a sovereign. William saw the preparations for the momentous occasion. They were very busy decorating and preparing to receive the king, who was on his way to India.
The effects of colonialism were also apparent when the passengers checked into the Taj Mahal Hotel. The guest rooms were equipped with large fans of straw matting. Charlotte Ehrlicher noticed a beam across her room that was suspended on heavy cords, a deep flounce of straw matting suspended from it. Running from the beam through a hole in the wall to the outside was a rope. Squatting on the piazza sat a little dark figure draped in a red scarf and faintly tinkling with anklets and bracelets pulling the rope. The cultural differences were pronounced and fascinating to the passengers. In India, the caste system was inviolable, even in death. William's description of the cremation process underscores the differences. The body is placed on a pile of dry wood, and more wood is added. The fire is lit, and when all that remains are the ashes, they are gathered up and thrown into the water. The poor's ashes go into the ocean, but the wealthies are released into the river Ganges. This would not be the last comment on death during the voyage. For the most part, the trip had been uneventful. That changed as the Cleveland headed toward Singapore. The island's beauty impressed Charlotte Ehrlicher. She remarked on the red-roofed houses and the Chinese boats called sampans whose sails resembled moths' wings. The passengers eagerly awaited the impending ceremony that would accompany the ship's crossing of the equator. According to Ehrlicher, the ceremony was known as the christening. A man portraying the sea god Neptune came aboard and granted the captain permission to cross. During the ritual, a woman jumped overboard, intending to commit suicide. Charlotte recalled seeing a figure flat on its back, dressed in a black cotton dress, hands folded beneath the waist. A teenage boy also jumped into the water to try to rescue her, but to no avail. William recounted that the interruption halted the ceremony, and the ship stopped during the rescue attempt. The crew launched a lifeboat and recovered the woman's body and the young man who was unhurt. Crew members then embalmed her body so that it could be transported to San Francisco. The tourists were feted once they reached Canton. It was one of William's favorite stops on the tour. He remembered, We found the city flying the rebel flag and under a military governor, whose soldiers met us at the boat landing, and the officer in command informed us that we were the guests of the governor and would be given a military escort while seeing the sights of the city. Canton had been the site of a failed uprising against the Qing dynasty in April 1911. It is known as the Yellow Flower Mound Uprising. A local committee of businessmen held a reception for the party, and the governor delivered an address, which was interpreted by a young Chinese man who had graduated from the University of Illinois. The passengers received a similar welcome in Honolulu, this time with a larger American presence. A little over ten years had passed since the U.S. had annexed the Republic of Hawaii at the urging of a group of expansionists. It then became a U.S. territory in 1900. Expansionists wanted to acquire the Hawaiian Islands for political and economic reasons, which likely became apparent to the visitors when they saw the American warships in Honolulu, and when they took an automobile tour of the sugarcane fields and pineapple groves on Oahu. The stop in the Hawaiian Islands garnered national attention, for the Cleveland collided with the USS Colorado, an armored cruiser, and damaged it. The Cleveland's pilot, M.P. Sanders, had suffered a heart attack, died, and lost control of the liner. An article in the Stewart family scrapbook reported, The steamer struck the Colorado astern, jamming a gun near the cabin occupied by Captain William A. Gill. It is believed the propeller of the Colorado also was damaged. The Cleveland returned to San Francisco on February 1, 1912. William spent some time with his sister Isabel and her family before returning to Illinois. In late 1913, he embarked on another excursion, this time to the South Pacific, where he toured Tahiti, and New Zealand. 
Although unlikely, I like to imagine that he may have crossed paths with one of my favorite poets, Rupert Brooke, who was also living and working in the South Pacific. Charlotte Ehrlicher went on to work for the New Jersey Department of Health. She also operated a Red Cross canteen during World War I. During the early 20th century, an upwardly mobile middle class began to find new ways to spend their disposable income. A trip around the world allowed tourists to experience the other in a controlled, sanitized way. They also participated in a spectacle rather than immersing themselves in the culture. This trip may have been many passengers' first glimpse of colonialism's effects. Furthermore, William's voyage gives us insight into the fledgling tourism industry. Shipping companies branched out into new lines of business to stay ahead of their competitors. Advances in technology provided passengers with more comfortable journeys. For example, cabins were outfitted with electric lights and fans. William Stewart's and Charlotte Ehrlicher's accounts allowed their readers to live vicariously. And that, friends, is where this tale ends. Prairie Tales is a production of the Buchanan Center for the Arts in Monmouth, Illinois. If you enjoyed our podcast, look for more content on Instagram at Buchanan Center and on Facebook at BCA Monmouth. Email us with questions and suggestions for future episodes at prairietalespodcast at gmail.com. Remember, not all history is found in a book. Sometimes it's found in the stories we tell. Just listen to the sound of the prairie and you too might hear a tale.